you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we will be reading verses 4 through 9 here in just a few moments. Over the past few weeks, we have been working our way through some thoughts about fear. I mentioned when we first ventured off into this little side pool, if you will, will, that we've been dipping our toes in, I mentioned that we were taking fear, the idea of fear, a little bit like a diamond and trying to turn that diamond and look at the various facets in order to not only understand better fear, but also to understand what Paul is calling us to in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. I want to take just a couple of moments and remind us where we have come from in order to explain where it is that we're going today. So the first couple of weeks, or really week and a half in this study, we just made some general observations about what the Bible says related to, or a biblical perspective overall, related to these issues of worry, anxiety, and fear. And then, in the third week, we looked at a definition of fear. And we pointed out specifically three elements to what fear is. Do you remember what those three elements are? One is something or some things that we value, something that we want. There's not just something that we want, but there's some sort of perceived threat to what we want. Either something that's going to steal it away from us, steal what we want from us, or hinder us from getting what we want. And then thirdly, there is our response to that threat to what we want our fearful response. Last week, we looked at the Bible's direction to us, or we began to look at the Bible's direction to us in responding faithfully to our fear. And this is what we observed. The Bible directs us to consider ourselves, what we value, and perceived threats in relation to Almighty God. So there are those three things again, ourselves, what we value, and threats. And the Bible guides us to see these things in light of Almighty God. Now, as we thought about this last week, we contrasted our limitations with particularly God's omniscience, His omnipotence, the lack of His limitations in His power or knowledge, and we contrasted our errors, primarily because of our sin, with God's infinite perfection, His holiness, the absence of any error in Him. And in short, setting God's infinite greatness in contrast to our humanity and our fallenness in light of our fear, seeing God's greatness in contrast to our limitedness and our fallenness, especially in light of what brings us or causes, leads us to fear, reminds us that it is God who is wholly trustworthy, no matter what it is that tempts us to worry, anxiety, and fear, but also setting God's infinite greatness in contrast to our, if you will, ungreatness, should help us see and be willing to admit that our response of fear can be, can be a signal that something isn't quite right in one of the following areas. That is, coming back to these three areas. There may be something wrong in our value system, what we're wanting, what we're desiring. 
there may be something wrong in how we think about the threats to what we value. But also, our fear can be a signal that how we're approaching the relationship between what we want, the threats, and the Almighty God. And something is off in how we're putting those together. Remember, a number of weeks ago, if you were with us, I referred to an illustration by David Pallison, brother in Christ who is now with the Lord. And he wrote about this experience of worry, anxiety, and fear, saying that what our goal is, biblically, is not to numb ourselves, not to eliminate all aspects of concern or worry in this life. Because our concerns, our anxieties, can be a signal like the check engine light on your car indicating that something is not right. And there are plenty of things that are not right in this world. But that quote-unquote check engine light may be an indication not only that something is not right out there, but it may be a pointer that there's something that is not right in here. Now, in all of these areas, in one way or another, we've had this purple handout in your bulletin over the past couple of weeks, and we've kind of walked through these ideas using this handout and putting them on here. If you've not been with us and you'd like to have one of these, there are some out at the welcome desk if you'd like to grab one this morning. This were when we're done. But this morning, as we made the connection last week between our limitations and God's perfections in relationship to our fear, we're going to consider once more these things, what we value, the threats, in relation to Almighty God in a different way. Just as our worry can be a signal that something isn't quite right in our desires and other areas, so also our fear can be a warning light indicating that somewhere in how we think about or approach God's responsibilities and our responsibilities, there is something amiss. Our fear can signal that how we're approaching what God is responsible for, what we understand God to be responsible for, and what we are responsible for is somehow misconstrued. And so, to help us do that, there is, this morning, there's a yellow insert inside your bulletin with a big diagram on it. And if you're joining us on the live stream, this diagram is going to be on the live stream this morning. And really, what we're going to be doing is thinking through this diagram and how it helps us to understand our fear, how we respond to God and our circumstances. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this diagram. First of all, when it was originally developed by Paul Tripp, or something close to it, I've adapted it a bit, but when Paul Tripp developed it and presented it first in a journal and then in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, you see that there on the handout, he wasn't concerned primarily for fear, but just generally helping us understand better the relationship between God's responsibilities and our responsibilities. And I want to suggest that there is help for us not just in this area of worry, anxiety, and fear, in thinking through the relationship between these areas, but this has implications, brothers and sisters, for how we approach many, many, many issues in our lives. And we're just honing in, in particular, on its implications for 
fear. So, how are we going to consider this? Well, I want us to take a few minutes, and I want to explain the diagram there for you. There's a lot of information on there. And then we're going to take one biblical personality and consider how these dynamics show up in that person's life. You're wondering who it is? Well, try and guess who it might be. There are a number of characters, personalities in the Bible that we could use. Who do you think I'm using this morning? We'll find out in a moment. And then I want us to think about how the relationships pictured in this diagram really help us address or think about our fear, our experience of fear, especially as it is a response to God, the Almighty God. So, first, let's think about this diagram. Now, on the outside, there is this this boundary, this ellipse. All right, I need to add one more clarification. Okay, you're, I might from time to time refer to this as, or refer to these as circles. I know they're not circles, they are ellipses, but circles rolls off the tongue a whole lot easier than ellipses do, okay? So don't fault me for my geometry confusion, but the, the circles, the regions, the areas, the ellipses... That's, that's what they are. But that outside region, the area of influence, you see it titled there as influence. What is it? What does this represent? Well, it represents the things that influence me in some way but are beyond my capacity and thus not my responsibility. To love and glorify God, I need to identify these things and entrust them to God. So these are things that are too big for me. They are really beyond my ability to have any substantial influence over, but they do, in one way or another, influence me. They impact me, and they are well within God's realm of responsibility. What are some examples of these? Well, one example would be your birth family and circumstances. You had no control over that. Certainly, it has influence on you when you were born, where you were born, to whom you were born. Friends, we have no control. Though our world is even raging against this very concept. We have no control over the death of our friends and our loved ones. But that influences us, even though it is beyond our capacity. World events, economic conditions, gas prices. We have no control over these things, but they certainly do influence us in one way or another. The weather either generally or specific weather events and natural disasters. We can't control these, but they do influence us. The actions and decisions of others. We can't control these. But they do influence us and impact us either directly or indirectly. These things, and there are many others, that are beyond our ability to control and are beyond our responsibility, what is our right response? We are to entrust them to God and trust Him with them and their influences on us. But inside, inside these things that are God's responsibility is another Circle. What we're calling the, the circle or the region of responsibility. This region represents things that are within my capacity and my responsibility. I can't pass them off to anyone else. To love and glorify God, I need to understand and address these in faithful obedience. So there are things that are beyond us that are God's domain. 
But there are things that God has entrusted to us within His domain that we have responsibility for. And we can't pass them off if we're going to live in faithful obedience to anyone else. What kinds of things fall within this region of responsibility? Well, I have a responsibility to love and respect all members of my family and all of my friends and really anyone that I come in contact with who is my neighbor. Remember that question? I have a responsibility to love and respect them at all stages of life. I have a responsibility for my contribution based on my role to my marriage and my family. Parents, you have a responsibility to train and discipline your children. And you cannot pass that off to anyone else and live in faithful obedience to the Lord. I am responsible, we are responsible to exercise diligence and faithfulness in the workplace. Whether your workplace is in a brick-and-mortar place that you go, or your workplace is at home with your kids. We are called to exercise responsibility, to be diligent and faithful in our daily responsibilities. We are responsible for exercising stewardship of the material resources that are entrusted to us. We are responsible for our responses to others and how they respond to us in their actions and their decisions. How, though we cannot control what they say and do, we are responsible in how we react and how we respond to what they say and do to us. And so in this region of responsibility, what is our ultimate responsibility? What should characterize us? Well, it should be, as it says there, faithful obedience. We are to obey faithfully what God has said and how He has guided us in His Word related to these things that are our responsibility. Now, as we think about these two regions or these two circles, there are two ways that we can go wrong. Two broad ways. And I want to suggest that no small amount, no small amount of our confusion or frustration in this life stems from our confusion, our blurring of these two areas. And there are two ways, two broad ways that we can go wrong in understanding how the region of influence that is under God's authority and within that our region of responsibility that is under our responsibility. There are two ways we can go wrong. One is we don't see one inside the other. We can go wrong by actually seeing these as two completely separate circles. And so you've got God's responsibilities over here, and you've got our responsibilities over here, and there's no relationship really between the two. Well, that's not how the Bible pictures how we relate to God and how God relates to us and our responsibilities. These are not entirely separated. One is within the other. But also... And I think more tempting for many of us, we confuse the boundaries. That is, we either expand our region of responsibility, overreaching into God's domain, or we shrink what is our responsibility and we neglect what God has entrusted to us. And these responses are reflected in these arrows that are on the diagram. Let's see, can I get one more slide advance? There we go. All right, thank you. So, we can distort our responsibilities in two ways. I know this is a lot of information, but hang with me, and we're going to apply this or see this worked out in 
again, one individual's life. How can we distort these responsibilities? Well, one is by expanding. What I'm calling usurping. That is, in some way, trying to usurp God's authority. And trying to grasp or cling to what is rightfully His responsibility. We attempt to extend our creaturely reach and do God's job for Him. Or we try to do, we want to do God's job for Him. We imagine that it's our responsibility to influence or control those things that are really beyond us. What does this look like? Well, some, some ways it can show up. We, res- we can respond to others. They're not doing what we want, saying what we want. Parents, you know this with your children. And we can try and respond to them in an effort to guarantee that they do what we want them to do to conform to what we think they must be doing. We try to control them. Or we pine. We pine after different circumstances. We imagine that we know how things ought to be. And if this were different, then I would be happy. And if God would just change this aspect of my life or our life, then things would be well and I could have true joy and unending peace. And what is the result as we try and usurp God's authority in these areas that are His concern and beyond us? Well, the result is anger, fear, Frustration, discouragement, disillusionment, because things are not the way we want them to be. But not only can we try and overreach, usurp God's authority in one way or another, but we can also shrink that circle. And we can neglect those things that are our responsibility. We minimize our responsibilities. We expect God to address what He has entrusted to us. What does this look like? Well, some things that it can look like. We neglect or dismiss our contribution to relational conflicts. I don't need to worry about my contribution. It just is what it is. We neglect. We neglect our responsibilities at home as we give attention to other commitments, work, hobbies, etc. We neglect our role in our own spiritual growth. And we just assume that growth in Christ likeness is going to happen. What is the result when we neglect our responsibilities? Anger, fear, frustration, disappointment, disillusionment. The same, the same responses. Now, what do we do with these? How can, we, how can we see these in action? As I thought about that, Abraham. Abraham's life shows these dynamics. Here's what I mean. Genesis chapter 12. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Now, as we think about a couple of events in the life of Abraham, let me clarify, make one thing clear, okay? This picture doesn't come from any single passage of Scripture. But it is, I believe, a helpful way to envision how all of the Bible relates God's responsibilities and our responsibilities. 
and the temptation because of our sin to distort these responsibilities. But how do these show up in Abraham's life? In a couple of of ways. There are other ways that we could see them, but I just want to point to a couple. First, we need to remember, what did God do with Abram before he changed his name to Abraham? Do you remember? God made a commitment to Abraham. He made a covenant to Abraham. And we read about that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Remember, God makes this promise to Abram when he and Sarah, Abram at the age of 75, Sarai at the age of 65, have no children. And yet there is this promise, I will make of you a great nation. And two more times, God repeats this covenant commitment. Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Turn over quickly to Genesis 15. I want us to see one aspect of this repetition. Verses 3 through 6 of Genesis 15. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So Abram says, You made this promise, I don't have a child. The word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God makes these covenant promises to make Abram a great nation. Now, go back to chapter 12. Go back to chapter 12, and now verse 10. And before we read, I want us to note one thing. Abram's, Abraham's or Abram's usurping is overreach and his neglect center around this promise to make Abram a great nation, and they expose Abram's fears, his uncertainties. Notice we see it first in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. And the story continues. Now, there's another similar event in Abram's life related to Abimelech. Genesis chapter 20, very similar scene. He didn't learn the first time, he went through it again. But what do we see about Abram's usurping and his neglect? Well, what did he do here? God has just given him this promise as it is recorded for us. And Abram, in obedience, goes to the land that the Lord shows him. But this famine develops. How does Abram usurp God's authority? Instead of trusting God and God's covenant promise, specifically the covenant promise to make Abram a great nation. And what's that going to require? It's going to require that Abram continue to live, that Sarai continue to live, and that they have a son. But instead of trusting that that will happen, Abram took it upon himself in the face of a perceived threat, Pharaoh, to protect what he valued, his own life, the life of his wife, and what he wanted 
the promise of a family line. He was afraid that these would be taken from him by his own death because of the beauty of his wife and the threat of the Egyptians. And so he took into his own hands the responsibility to avoid the threat and see the promise fulfilled. But not only did Abram overreach and not trust God and His promises. He didn't entrust to God what was God's. But he also neglected. He neglected his responsibility to love and care for his wife by saying, here, I'm just going to tell them you're my sister. He wasn't loving and caring for his wife. He was neglecting his responsibility as a husband. We see this same dynamic again in chapter 16. Turn over to chapter 16. Again, related to this promise and this hope of an heir, of a son. Notice verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So there it is. Abram's waiting on a son. He doesn't have one. There are no children in the family. Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. They neglected to trust the promise of God to give them a son. Sarai, in particular, usurping, attempting to usurp authority, control over the situation from God, did this. Instead of trusting God and His covenant promises, Sarai took it upon herself in the face of a perceived threat. What was the threat? Her barrenness. She had not born children. And she took it upon herself to secure what she valued, what she wanted. What was that? A son for her husband. And what resulted as she saw the threat, responded to the threat, tried to ensure what she wanted, what resulted? Jump down to verses 5 and 6. And Sarai said to Abram, So now Hagar has given birth. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked upon me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. What resulted? Now there was a new threat. Sarai was concerned that Abraham's love was going to be for Hagar and no longer for Sarai. So in her attempt to make things right as she thought they needed to be right, it only created more problems for the family. And as you trace the history of humanity, truly problems that still linger with us today. But not only did Sarah usurp God's authority, but Abraham is woefully neglectful in this scene, right? Instead of leading his family to trust God and his promises, Abraham says, that sounds like a good plan. And then when the new threat arises, okay, you deal with it. I want no part in this. So Abraham is like, uh-uh, I'm, I'm off. I'm off of here. So, what do you have in these ways and in others? We can see other ways that this shows up. We have these two, in some ways, trying to do for God what they think He is not going to, not able to do, or not going to do in the way that they think He ought to do. And they are also neglecting the responsibilities that God has entrusted to them, particularly responses to trust and obey Him. 
So, what does this have to do then with our fear? Well, we see Abram and Sarai responding in fear to their threats, to what it was that they wanted to see happen. And so how can we relate this and this picture to our experience of fear? First, as we have said from the beginning, and I even alluded to it earlier today, is there a place for right concern in life? And the answer is yes, there is. And we see this not just by asserting it, but remember, Paul himself in the letter to the Philippians acknowledges the place of appropriate concern in this fallen world. Philippians 2.20 For I have no one like him, that is Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Remember that word translated here, genuinely concerned, is the same word that Paul uses then in Philippians 4. Do not be concerned. Do not be anxious. But here he commends Timothy for his concern. His appropriate anxiousness for the churches. But also, Paul says about himself, I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul is acknowledging a measure of anxiety that he has for the Philippians, and he's trying to assuage that. But elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 11, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He has an appropriate concern for the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ that are under his apostolic authority so that as we think about our responsibility and those things that God has entrusted to us in our creatureliness, there is a faithful concern, appropriate concern for the things that are within the realm of our responsibility. But there is also sinful worry sinful worry. And we can see this in these two groups of arrows. Usurping our sinful worry shows up as usurping and as neglect. Here's what I mean. When in our sinful worry, we seek to usurp authority, influence, control from God, we're tempted to believe that God cannot be fully trusted with those things that influence me but are beyond my capacity. What is it for you? What is it for you that concerns you and is beyond your capacity ultimately to control. But you question, either explicitly or implicitly, whether God can be trusted with those things. Perhaps it's the balance in your retirement account. And the things that you will face in the future when retirement comes to you? What is it in your life? When in our sinful worry, we are usurping or tempted to usurp control from God, we worry that threats beyond my capacity to control, influence, or ensure will result in sorrow, pain, and so forth. We worry that threats beyond us will hinder our joy, will hinder our comfort. Our fear-driven imagination longs for sources of security or some assurance that I will have joy, that I won't have pain or sorrow. And in these ways, as I imagine ways to secure my future happiness or joy or the future happiness or joy of those that I love, 
and in ways that are really beyond us, our fear-driven imagination is the first step towards trying to arrest influence from God. But not only do we usurp in our sinful worry, we neglect. What do we neglect? Well, as we worry about not getting what we want, or we worry about getting those things that we don't want, that pain, sorrow, and so forth, we obsess over these threats. We obsess over not getting what we think we have to have in order to be satisfied. And as a result, because as we talked about last week, our attention is limited, we neglect our responsibility to cultivate and respond to God and our circumstances with faith, hope, love, joy, thanksgiving, obedience. We don't respond in joy. We don't respond in trust. We don't respond with thanksgiving because we are so obsessed with what we may not get or getting what we may not want. What kind of indications then are there? What kind of indications are there that are that concern has become sinful in one of these two areas. We've overreached or we're neglecting faithful obedience to God. When there are indications that we are or imagining ourselves as responsible for what God is responsible for. If we are imagining in some way that we're responsible for what God is actually responsible for, friends, we are de-godding God. To use a phrase from D.A. Carson. That is, we are attempting to put ourselves on God's throne. And you know what that evidences? It doesn't evidence that we love God too much. It evidences that we love what we want too much. When we try and arrest this influence from God, we demonstrate an idolatry towards what we value and threats to what we want. But we also see our anxiety as sin in our neglect. When we are so concerned about what we treasure or threats to what we treasure, that we neglect our responsibility to cultivate and respond to God with faith, love, joy, thanksgiving, and obedience. When we are so consumed with the fact that it may not turn out the way I want it to turn out, That we are tempted to neglect cultivating faith, joy, hope, love. Again, there is an idolatry in our heart. But even more clearly, these can be a bit, these can be abstract. But friends, the way it shows up most plainly in our lives, and this is tied to what we've just said. Our our anxiety expresses itself in sinful ways. We know that our worry is sinful when or is influenced by our sin. There is a sin component to our worry when it shows up in sinful ways. What do I mean? Thinking about what we want and threats to it when we don't get what we want, or we think we might not get what we want, and we sin. We sin by neglect of cultivating these graces. We sin in our responses of anger and disillusionment and so forth. When we sin because we are afraid that we're not going to get what we want, there is a sin component, a sin problem in our worry. There's also a sin component 
when we respond sinfully, when we are afraid that we will get what we don't want. Again, think about pain, sorrow. And when those threats are coming to us, we don't want them. We don't want to have them. We don't want them a part of our lives. We don't want those hardships a part of the lives of those that we love. And we sin in response to avoid getting what we don't want. Friends, there is sin in our anxiety. So how do we respond? And here, you've been wondering, how long is it going to be until we get back to Philippians 4? Here we come back to Philippians 4. How do we respond when we see that we are usurping God's authority and that shows up in our fear? How do we respond when we see that we're being neglectful in our fear? When we're sinning because we either might get, we're afraid we'll get what we don't want, or we won't get what we do want. How do we respond? Two things to close our observations. We need to first remember. Remember. Remember what? Well, remember what we talked about last week. We need to remember God's perfections. We need to remember God's holiness, His omniscience, His mighty power. But we also need to remember God's promises. And friends, these come under what Paul writes there in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Friends, God's promises are just. God's promises are commendable. God's promises are pure. God's promises are lovely. What promises of God do we need to remember when we are afraid? From our Scripture reading earlier, Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. We need to remember the promise of the deliverance of the Lord. But friends, we need to remember that in this life, the deliverance that we are longing for from those threats that we think are coming at us in this life, God may not bring that the way that we want, the way that we expect. The deliverance that the Lord brings to us may be in His removal of us from this life because the ultimate deliverance that He has promised and that He will surely give is the deliverance that He guarantees in Romans 8, and that is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. This is the deliverance that must be where our heart rests when we find ourselves longing to arrest control from God, longing to just forget about cultivating the graces and responding in faith to God, and instead our attention being consumed by the worries of this life, we need to remember the precious promise from God that nothing can take you if you are in Christ from His hand. And there is coming a day when we will be with Christ. But not only do we need to respond in faith, Remembering God's perfections and remembering God's promises. But friends, we also are called in the midst of our worry to pray. To take our concerns to God. That's what Paul directs the Philippians to in Philippians 4, 6. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Next week, we're going to think about the kinds of things as we bring this consideration to a conclusion. We're going to think about the kinds of prayers that we can pray in the midst of our worry, anxiety, and fear. But this morning, I want to give you just one as we bring our time to to a close. Sometimes in our concern, when we're awoken at night and our mind just won't stop racing over the fears and the anxieties that are seeming to overwhelm us. Friends, sometimes the only prayer that we can pray is what we have in Psalm 119.94, I am yours, save me. And when you can pray nothing else, cry out to the Lord and declare to Him, I am yours, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from these threats. Help me to cling to Your promise to eternally save me when this life is over. Friend, you might be here today and you can't make that. You can't cry out, Lord, I am Yours. Save me. Because you don't know the saving grace of God in Christ. Today, let this prayer become your prayer. I am yours. Save me. Will you turn over your life to Christ and put your trust in Him? Let Him today be your salvation and come to know His great and precious promises. If you don't know how you can become a follower of Christ, how you can make this prayer, I trust in you, save me. How you can make that prayer yours. Let's talk. Let's talk when this service is over. Let's talk this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you once more, Father, thank You for reminders from Your Word that You are the ruler over all things. And Father, there is no detail of our lives that we cannot entrust to You. As has been said, if in Christ we are saying that we are entrusting our eternity to You through the saving work of Christ then what is it to entrust these 24 hours? What is it to entrust these 70, 80, 90 years to You? If we can trust You with our eternity, surely we can trust You with this life, which is but a mist. Father, help us. Help us to see where in our fears, in our worries, we are tempted to sin. How it is that we are imagining ourselves as better drivers of the steering wheel of our life than you are. Help us to see where in our worry we are neglecting the faithful obedience that you have called us to. Help us to remember your character. Help us to remember your promises. Help us, Father, to cry out to you. I am yours. Save me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.